Hi, my name is Patricia Robayo, and I'm a producer with WJFF Radio Catskill. Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. Joining me today is journalist Leah Mayo of the River Reporter and Chris Rowley of the Shawanacook Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pantuso from the River Newsroom. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, everyone. We have a lot to get to, so let's get straight to it. Here in Sullivan County, we had a big vote of the Sullivan County legislature for the vote for the chairman. This is to keep Rob Daugherty there for another two years. It was a little controversial, and when I say controversial, it was the first time I saw in my experience as a reporter seeing someone voted in and then right after that having been booed. This is something to me was out of the norm. Joe, you were there. What was your take on it? Sure. So uh, Liam and I were both present uh, in person uh, for that uh, meeting. Uh, it was uh, very interesting. So before the meeting even began, uh, even though it was a very chilly day, uh, people were outside putting signs on their cars. And there were some people who were uh, in uh, vote hopeful that there would be new leadership in the legislature uh, that had a drive-by protest of the government center. They just kept circling around with their cars, beeping the horn. Uh, and, you know, letting their opinions be heard. Uh, we started the legislature meeting, uh, just for those that don't know, the Sullivan County Legislature, they're elected to four-year terms. Halfway through those four-year terms, they have a reorg meeting, they reelect the chair and vice chair. And I had polled all of the legislators, uh, except one of the nine, uh, prior to the vote, which was, um, and pretty much it was a 4-4 split between uh, Michael Brooks, uh, Nick Salamone, and George Conklin, and obviously Doherty voting for himself for in support of himself uh, for chair. And on the other side, Joe Perillo, District 7 legislator, was going for the, the chairship. And Louis Alvarez, our Steingarten, Nadi Rice supported him in that. Um, I didn't wasn't able to reach Alan Sorensen uh, by press time. Um, and uh, but that was sort of the wild card. People were wondering what's Alan gonna do because nine, nine seats. So who's that fifth and determining vote gonna be? Uh, he's District 9. So what they did is they went in reverse order. So he was the first person that had to uh, vote after a nomination was made for uh, Doherty to be reelected. Uh, and he voted uh, in favor of Rob. Uh, and, you know, afterwards, yes, some people in attendance, the same folks who were protesting, um, were also very upset, you know, and, and making various sounds. Uh, and, uh, but as far as Alan, I reached out to him after the vote. Uh, he said the reason that he was supportive of Rob is that he had particular um, projects in the past that he would bring to other legislative chair people. And uh, those projects kind of fell on deaf ears and he brought them to Rob, he said. And um, he said he felt Rob put in the time and effort that helped to bring those projects to fruition. And he has other goals that he has left uh, to accomplish. And he said, you need someone that, you know, put in the effort and time you have confidence will help you accomplish those goals. And that's why he said he voted for Rob. So essentially, in a nutshell, to those listening, uh, Rob Doherty and Michael Brooks were once again by a 5-4 vote, uh, voted in by the majority of their peers to serve as chair and vice chair of the legislature for the next two years until all nine seats are up for re-election. All right. Thank you so much for that, Joe. Uh, Liam, this was, of course, wasn't the only thing going on in the legislature. Recently, the legislature voted to participate in an opioid settlement. Do you have an update on what's going on with that? Yeah. So the legislature held an emergency meeting to discuss this opioid settlement um, during their January 13 meetings. 
um, to my knowledge, the meeting, the emergency meeting was set up during the committee meetings. Like the committee meeting started around nine. Uh, the, the county, the clerk of the legislature, Anne-Marie Martin was sort of running around setting up this emergency meeting during earlier committee meetings and sent out uh, the notice for the emergency meeting around 10.09, I believe. So it was this somewhat rushed process to talk about this opioid settlement, which is a settlement agreement with the opioid manufacturer Allegrin. Um, it's being done in conjunction with all the counties of New York State. Um, and according to what was discussed at the um, legislature meetings, Sullivan County is going to get around $377,774 of a overall $125 million suite with um, the proportion of that money going to Sullivan County being decided by some kind of objective formula. Um, so the legislature discussed this and eventually decided to um, sign on to this. Um, so they will be getting that money. Um, but the thing to watch going forward is where that money will end up being spent, I think, because they discussed in the meeting that 50% of that money is guaranteed to go towards um, opioid programs to combat the opioid epidemic, um, just based on the terms of the settlement. But the other 50% is unrestricted, so it can theoretically be spent on anything. And legislatures were pretty united in saying this does need to go to opioid programs. This all should go to opioid programs. but there were also sort of specters of what had happened with ARPA money, where uh, the county's last round of ARPA money had not ended up getting spent on public health initiatives. So uh, the legislature said they were going to keep looking into it. Uh, county manager Josh Potasek said that the drug task force is coming up with a list of objectives that they want funded that could that this money could be used on. Um, so we'll just have to see going forward where this money ends up going and sort of keep an eye on that. Right. From what I remember, the other funding that you mentioned, I believe, didn't it, it pay for the new boiler at SUNY Sullivan instead of going to the other things, right? Yes. It, it Half of it half went to pay for new boilers and um, just, I believe just overall energy efficiency measures at SUNY Sullivan. And the other half went towards funding road work throughout the county. So not necessarily the kinds of public health initiatives that a lot of public advocates uh, were hoping for. Now, if we just backtrack a little bit on the vote for Rob, I know since you since Joe mentioned that you were there in person. So what is sort of your take on what happened there with the vote? And, and it's like you mentioned, like this special meeting for the opioid settlement was done in a, sort of in a rushed fashion. Um, and it seems that sort of sort of sort of a trend there. Uh, almost from, one, from, my, from my perspective, what I've seen. But I just want to see what is your take on what happened with the vote and how how everything went down. Yeah, there there was a lot of sentiment on the day uh, that was very um, very heightened, as, as Joe mentioned. Uh, there were protesters beforehand. There were protesters during the meeting, um, and it was sort of the legislature itself. Members of the legislature had sort of choice words for each other during that meeting. Um, I believe in a speech that he gave, a brief speech that he gave after the vote, uh, Rob Doherty said something to the effect that he was an agent for change, that change has its enemies, and that you could know him by his enemies. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but that's um, close to what he said. Um, and 
the one of his opposing members, uh, Ira Steingart, leader of the Democratic majority, uh, talked at the end of the meeting about how the public needed to keep showing up, needed to keep holding the legislature accountable, needed to sort of keep doing what they were doing while members on the legislature would continue to keep fighting for it as well. So with Rob Dougherty becoming chairman again, could have potentially been a time of change. It could have been a time for a little peace to prevail potentially, but it seems to have only heightened tensions and to have heightened a, a divide between members of the legislature and between members of the public. And the sort of rushed nature of the opioid settlement isn't necessarily a direct like correlation to that. It doesn't just a, a change in leadership at the county level isn't necessarily going to change everything about how the county works overnight. But I, I think some people would see that as a sign that there was an opportunity for change with um, with the Rob Dougherty getting reelected that was missed. And Philip, you're also working at the River Newsroom on the opioid epidemic that's going on in Hudson Valley. What can you tell us from your reporting? Yeah, so so basically we're we're looking at um, kind of the same sort of thing that Liam was talking about, but on a, on a little bit of a wider level. So one of the things we learned this week when more details of the executive budget came out uh, is that uh, that budget calls for an increase of $402 million in operating and capital support for the Office of Addiction Services and Supports to 56% increase in their annual budget. And the funds from the, um, from the settlement that Liam was talking about, those are being earmarked um, for investments uh, in new initiatives to combat the opioid crisis. And one thing we're going to kind of be tracking, I think, as that money gets dispersed is how counties and municipalities decide to use that money. The, the overall increase in budget funding for the Office of Addiction Services and Supports is also going to create a new division of harm reduction within that office. And one of the things we're looking at there is, um, as I'm sure several listeners know, a few months ago, a couple months ago in New York City, the, the city opened uh, two what they call supervised injection sites, which essentially are a safe space for people to inject. And as of January 7th, those sites had reversed 80 overdoses with zero fatalities. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of research showing that this is one of the more effective solutions to preventing deaths um, and reducing the transmission of, of viruses like HIV and, and Hep C. And of course, this is this is badly needed uh, across the state, but especially in Sullivan County, where I think in 2020 the um, the overdose rate was three times what the what the state's rate was. So um, we're we're doing some reporting basically trying to look at whether the supervised injection site model might be something that makes its way um, further further upstate. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a, a town by town basis. There's, there's, you know, a sort of NIMBY hurdle to overcome with that. There are people who don't exactly want that in their town or in their neighborhood. Um, but there's, there's research shows that not, not only is it safe, but it actually leads to a decrease in dropped syringes in public places. And similar sites in places like Sydney, Australia, and in Vancouver have seen a decrease in public injection in surrounding communities with no um, increase in crime or drug trafficking. So that's something we're going to be tracking um, throughout this year. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see if that type of program makes its way up to the Hudson Valley. 
I know in the past in some towns there were talks about having a homeless shelter in their town, and that drew a lot of uh, opposition. So I could just imagine having the thought of having an injection site in the town could upset some people. Uh, but like I said, based on the facts and that's coming out, your your that you're reporting on, you can see an actual benefit to have this in the new town. They have to deal with an opioid problem. We have an or huge opioid problem here in Sullivan County. Now, switching topics, the River Newsroom is also covering cannabis. Towns and villages had up to December 31st to choose whether to opt out or opt in for dispensaries. What can you tell us about the, what the River Newsroom has been doing with in covering cannabis? Yeah, I mean, there's there's honestly so many ways we could, we could the whole publication could just be a cannabis publication. Um, there's so many ways we could be we should be approaching this. Um, one way, one way we've done it um, is we had a writer look at really dig into one of these fights that was playing out in municipalities really across the state over whether to opt in or opt out. Um, this writer was looking at the fight in, in her hometown in Hastings on Hudson, which is down in Westchester County, sort of the southern southern end of our coverage area. Um, they eventually opted in, but you know. One of the things that has kind of come out from the numbers now that we know the towns that have opted in or opted out is it's pretty hard to draw any kind of conclusion about why a town opted in or out. Like there's not sort of a neat story to tell around, you know, if you have a certain kind of demographic makeup or if you're rural versus urban or what political leaning you are, whether or not you opted out. Overall, I think towns that went for that went Republican in 2020 were slightly more likely, but that doesn't really scale. Like the the the, the counties that were the most um, Democrat did not have the most opt-ins, for example. It really seems to have broken down on a kind of town by town basis, depending on uh, who the loudest voices in the room were. Um, and one of the things we're looking at, or, or one of the things the story that, that we're publishing looks at is, this fairly arbitrary deadline even of, of December 31st. So in other states that have legalized a recreational cannabis market, they have had this opt-in or opt-out provision that gets kicked down to the municipal level. As far as we can tell, New York is the first one to place a deadline on that decision. And of course the deadline doesn't work both ways. You can opt out now and then opt in later. Whereas if you opt in, you're, you're in. You know, there are a lot of arguments made for opting out. Some of them, I think, hold more water than others, but, but one of the ones I think is really kind of compelling is that towns were forced to make this decision without really the details of what the commercial market is going to look like, both dispensaries or consumption lounges, because, you know, the delay in sort of forming the Office of Cannabis Management and staffing it and hammering all the, all the regulations, that's, that's still being done. So to, to, put, to put this deadline before um, all of the parameters and particulars are known does seem you know, like it's putting towns in a, in a tough place, even if by opting out, they're, they're going to end up missing out on revenue. I attended a public hearing in Fallsburg on cannabis. The town was deciding whether to opt out and or opt in right before the deadline. And that was one of the main concerns town board members had was they were voting on something that was 100% completed yet. Um, Chris, in Ellenville, uh, you're having something different there. You have one, a, a, I would say a large warehouse of, of 
growing cannabis there. That's something we don't have here in Sullivan oh. County coming at all. But what can you tell us about an update there? You've been talking about to us a lot here in the local edition, also here on the Reporters Roundtable, about Cresco Labs. I believe there was a planning board uh, meeting last night, I believe, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, Cresco Labs came in with their full uh, site plan, uh, full application last night. And we heard all the, we've got, we've heard most of these details already. Um, it's pretty, uh, pretty big, pretty exciting in terms of the economic uh, boost it might give uh, Wawarsing and Ellenville. Um, you know, 380,000 square foot facility, possibly as many as 400 jobs. Uh, although we should add that they're also looking at about 750 parking spaces. So there may be more jobs down the road. Who can say? Uh, it will be a big change. And, um, um, you know, they're going to grow a lot of canopy. <laughs> a lot of product will come out. Uh, the planning board seemed to be... Uh, um, moderately uh, in an approving mode. Uh, I don't think anybody, there were no voices uh, in the public hearing against it. Um, and I'll just go back to um, what Philip was saying. Uh, uh, here in Wawarsing, it was strict party line. It was, a, you know, the three Republicans, no, the two Democrats, yes. And in the village of Ellenville, which is all Democrats, or at least it was then, uh, it was just yes, you know, there was there was no no question of of of, of any no's. Uh, I don't know. Uh, over in Orange County, you know, Crawford and also uh, Shongum, uh, strongly Republican places, it was straight up no. <laughs> so I don't know. There was a certain we seem to see a, a certain kind of political alignment that way. Um, and Rochester, town of Rochester, was also uh, opt in. Um, and one reason for opting in as opposed to opting out or, or, or not being able to opt out once you've opted in is, you know, once you've opted in, businesses will begin. And then what are you going to turn around and say to somebody who's invested half a million in a business? Well, I'm sorry, we had a change of uh, one person on the town board and uh, your business is canceled. No, that's not going to happen in New York State, I don't think. Anyway, back to back to Cresco Labs. Um, there were some issues. Riverkeeper has uh, sent in a letter, a 16-page letter, uh, with the usual concerns you would expect from Riverkeeper, which is, of course, an environmentally-minded organization concerned about what, what's going into uh, the Hudson River. We'll have to see what uh, Cresco Labs comes back to say in terms of what their effluent will be like. You know, what, what are they going to put out? They, they are estimating about uh, 30,000 gallons a day of effluent and about 90,000 gallons of water coming in every day. So there's 60,000 pounds to be dispersed between the atmosphere and the thousands of nine foot tall cannabis plants growing in, indoors. So the other issue, which of course has come up several times, is odor. Um, having thousands of nine-foot-tall cannabis plants growing inside somewhere means it's going to be a very strong smell. Uh, if you've ever been around growing cannabis, you know what I mean. Um, but uh, Cresco Labs has been uh, doing this in a lot of different states. They're in about 10, 11 states um and they are very confident they have carbon filtration systems they have a, a whole way of uh, i love them with the phraseology here um trapping fugitive odors uh, so put that one aside fugitive odors is something that will be trapped uh anyway they use carbon filtration which they say is the state of the art and they use something called air curtains around their loading docks and the uh um 
you know, where they have machinery doing uh, the production of their medicinal uh, products. So that, that, that was all, you know, they just ran through it all. Um, and we should give a big shout out to uh, Jonathan Lockman, the, uh, the town planner, uh, because he managed to read all the way through a nine page EAF part three without stumbling and without even a sip of water, which, you know, has got to be, I mean, that's getting up there, you know, just turning it into an Olympic event, you know, and uh, uh, I wouldn't much try that. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it all seems to be going along there. Now, to go with this, uh, I had a story last week, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, another organization, much smaller, but still in the same kind of business called Grow Generation, uh, which is a Denver-centered uh, uh, business, which is one of the biggies in indoor growing. Everything you want, you know, in terms of uh, uh, things to hide plants in, to hydroponic systems for your closet or the house or wherever, um, and nutrients and nutrient supply in everything from like a few ounces up to many pounds, even large quantities um they came in they have bought a property on route 209 just north of ellenville uh which coincidentally and he swears it's a coincidence uh is about a um, home runs distance no more than that about 500 feet from where cresco labs will be building their thing so when Cresco Labs needs anything for their hydroponics, they just have to walk up the road and collect it and bring it back in wheelbarrows. I mean, it's uh, it's so sweet, but it does seem to indicate that Wawarsing is going to be uh, some kind of a little regional center for um, this particular industry. And, um, you know, there will be jobs. Jobs yeah. are what is really desperately required up here. Yeah, and one of the things that you just mentioned, like, I think uh, that uh, I guess doesn't get mentioned a lot is sort of the other industries that will pop up around us like just mentioned that the hyper hyper i can't say that word for that industry there the way they grow hydroponics it, there you go hydroponics yeah. um the way they grow it there you know automatically have a store that's next to them that has the supplies they need um all those small little little businesses that can see that popping up uh to sort of uh help uh help the the industry go, going forward uh mixing oh, yeah. the jobs uh, and, and alone yeah, would be great right uh, he made the point that you can actually, actually you can also use their hydroponic system to grow tomatoes and right. spinach. Uh, Liam, let's bring it back to Sullivan County and bring it back to first responders in Sullivan County. What can you tell us about what's happening with the Cushecton Ambulance? Yeah, so currently the Cushecton Volunteer Ambulance Corps is serving the Cushecton area for its ambulance services. It's a sort of independently funded corps, but they're not receiving any sort of financial assistance from the town. And the sort of statewide story, I believe, is that um, EMS services are finding it harder and harder to sort of exist on their own without some kind of municipal funding, just based on, like, it, it's, it's harder for them to sustain themselves based on uh, insurance payouts and individual payouts and donations the way they sort of used to. So we've seen in Sullivan County, even last fall, coming into the winter, the town of Highland was working to create an ambulance district so it could uh, better fund its ambulance corps. Although it did, it was funding its ambulance corps to some extent, but uh, there was uh, some circumstances there that made founding an ambulance corps or an ambulance district uh, desirable. And in Cushecton, uh, the town board sort of 
their, their consensus was that if we're going to fund the Ambulance Corps, which the Ambulance Corps has been requesting for some time, um, the town would need to establish an ambulance district because that would that's the cleanest way of sort of getting an ambulance corps on the books. That's the most transparent way. And that's the most like clearly legal way of doing that. So they've there's been some back and forth between the ambulance corps and the town uh, in terms of who's going to set up the meetings, who's going to pay for it. Um, there were some figures mentioned at the last meeting that actually setting up the ambulance corps and hiring uh, Pinsky Law Group, which um, is the law, law, law group that uh, set up the Highland Ambulance Corps, um, that will run to about uh, 2,500 to 2,800, uh, excuse me, $25,000 to $28,000. And the Ambulance Corps was, um, it would be sort of a hardship for them to pay that when the whole point of this is to relieve the financial hardship of that organization. So the town at its last meeting decided that A, they're going to arrange to pay those costs uh, from the town's general fund, which will then get reimbursed from the ambulance district once that is set up. And they're going to sort of, they have this amb an ambulance committee now of, of two members of the town board, uh, Supervisor Gary Moss and uh, Sean Nearing, that will work with Pinsky Law Group and with the uh, ambulance corps to start that process going. So that'll probably play out over the next few months. And it's just another, uh, a, Another story in the trend of um, EMS services working with municipalities to sort of keep providing a very essential service to the area. Right. Because it's amazing that these volunteer people uh, do what they do, uh, take their time out of their, their daily lives to help everyone. So uh, definitely there's a need for it. Um, Joe, in, in schools, uh, many schools are already back in there. Uh, colleges are starting up. But if we could talk about the K-12 uh, section of schooling. Uh, you are reporting that there are school shortages in staffing. Is that nursing or is that in teachers? What is what is going on with the staffing in schools? Well, the short answer is uh, everything. Uh, so I, I reached out to six of the nine uh, districts that we have. So we have eight school districts. We also have Sullivan Boses, which is a district too, but you know it's uh, you know obviously different than our other districts. Um, so. Nationwide, there's been sort of staffing shortages, and this there, there's sort of a two-part thing. In some aspects, there's long-term issues with finding teachers in the long run. The pipeline is shrinking for uh, teachers uh, with a lot of with a lack of student demand. A lot of colleges are getting rid of their education programs. Uh, nationwide. So there are some concerns there. But the, the big issue that most people are facing is in short-term staff, because with the COVID-19 pandemic, with large numbers, these, these Omicron um, waves that went through here and stuff, and people having to quarantine, uh, there's like shortage. You can have a shortage on a given day of teachers, uh, nurses, uh, teachers' aides, bus drivers. So of the six districts I talked to, only one elder told me they didn't have any shortage uh, of staff currently. Um, other districts, there's at least a few positions that they need, but uh, substitutes, substitutes in general for all kinds of positions have always been a need, but it's become an increasing need um, as this pandemic has continued. And a lot of steps that uh, school districts are taking are some of them are raising the um, uh, the substitute rates per day, uh, certain schools have created floater positions where they've guaranteed people 
175 um, hours of work and uh, at a $200 per day uh, per diem salary to try to uh, get people to be substitutes. So there's a lot of uh, steps. And I asked these different districts, well, in general, what would make your challenges a little easier? And there's been a lot of confusion, um, the schools have stated, uh, from guidance on COVID. So like CDC guidance, DOH guidance, they don't always align fully. And so that creates a lot of confusion within our schools. So one suggestion from them just in general would be uh, to align their guidance a little bit. And I know that that's you know, guidance, they look at that for a number of different things from how you handle the pandemic to how long should someone be quarantined for? I mean, recently they lowered it from like 10 days to five days and just a lot. I mean, it literally changes every day. You, you go online and you see something different as far as, because as, we've never been in this situation with this particular virus before. Uh, another thing that uh, one superintendent had mentioned to me was that, uh, you know, it would be helpful. The state has a tax cap for um, schools and that. And so they were suggesting that uh, if that cap either was revised or taken away, that would help in certain aspects because compensation for teachers has been challenging because some districts have wanted to raise teacher salaries. But if you try to raise the budgets too much, usually the population in your area will not necessarily approve the budget. So there's a lot of um, different uh, things they've had to navigate. So that's really in a short term. I mean, look, our school leaders are doing the best they can. Schools are moving forward. There's still pretty much no school here has went fully remote yet. There are days here or there where they um, go remote because of shortages or large numbers of quarantine rates. So they're obviously doing a good job with keeping people in school, which seems to be, you know, parents and teachers predominantly preference is to have the kids there. Uh, but yeah, just just like all of us in our jobs and, and seeing the the chaos that is caused when one person in your office comes down with COVID or multiple people and, and there's a quarantine period, just imagine that on a, on a level with schools. It's just, uh, it's presenting a lot of challenges that they have to, to navigate. And every day, you know, one day they could be fine. Next day they could be without, you know, 20, 30% of their staff. So, you know, it's tough, tough times. Yeah, no, it's a challenging thing. I, I spoke to one teacher uh, recently that spoke about uh, the absence of time between uh, grades when, let's say, two years ago, let's say a fifth grader uh, was was in school and now they're back in school learning and now it's their seventh grade. Um, just at that time difference, uh, you know, behavioral differences, uh, just uh, uh, being back in a structure environment uh you know everyone's home life is different than everyone has a structured home life so uh they they found it difficult uh for those returning students coming back after this whole pandemic that we're still going through and hopefully this this semester can you know uh be a good semester that kids can stay in school safely because also i know also as a uh, as a parent i'm sure that it's very challenging to deal with uh, uh children and uh, the fear of getting sick well, I would just add on the school front, this really doesn't deal with staffing shortages, but I'll just make mention that SUNY Sullivan, um, it, uh, the president, Jay Quaintance, was on the local edition uh, recently on WJFF, and it's spoken about this, so I won't go into too much detail, but because of the rise in COVID cases and such, SUNY Sullivan decided to delay uh, the beginning of their spring semester by a week. 
so now they will be starting on January 26th, as opposed to having started on the 19th. So, um, and I believe they're requiring a lot more testing of faculty now, regardless of vaccination status. So those are just, that's just some changes that uh, the Omicron wave has brought about for the only college that Sullivan County has. So. Right. Right. And as I saw recently, I think one of the reporters in Albany mentioned that it might be uh, a wait and see as far as the full regulation goes for SUNY uh, until they have a new chancellor in place because they the new chancellor just recently uh, resigned. Um, I was just going to mention another breaking news thing that was recently came out was that the State Department of Health office that's currently in Monticello is uh, going to be moved to Middletown, or at least in Orange County, or at least that's the news that's coming out about it. Um, uh, we're our reporter Anne Marie Schutz is still looking into it, um, but the the indica there are indications that the um, it has to do with inadequate office space in Sullivan County, um, although that's been sort of questioned by people on the ground, um, and the I guess the things to mention about it are that Sullivan County's public health office isn't going anywhere. Like the county will still be served by the public health officials that are part of the county's government. Um, and but that the State Department of Health uh, office did provide a lot of essential services, such as uh, inspections of food, water, and air quality. Um, and that moving the office out of Sullivan County could impact those services. So it's a developing story. We'll see uh, what ends up happening with that. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for another edition for the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. My name is Patricia Robayo. We were joined by Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, Leah Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Riley from the Shawanagunk Journal, and Philip Pantuso from the River Newsroom. You were listening to the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricia Robayo.